on March 5th, 1976, American hard rock band KISS released their fourth studio album, Destroyer. By the time of the release, KISS were the most popular band in America, with sold-out stadium tours, their own pinball machines, makeup line and TV movie. This ridiculous over-the-top party rock album just gets better with age. Welcome to the 500 Albums Podcast, where we go through the Rolling Stones' top 500 list of greatest albums of all time. As selected by a panel of musicians, music critics, and journalists, and published by Rolling Stone magazine in 2003. My name is Urban, and today we are looking at number 488 on the list, Destroyer by Kiss. So we're back after a couple of weeks of no episodes. I'm uh, sorry for that, but we're back at it again. And uh, this time with a very legendary band. I think a lot of you, of course, would know who Kiss is and their music. I, of course, knew about them, uh, but I wasn't as familiar with their different kind of albums. And I've, I've always had some kind of prejudice about Kiss, about them being, in a way, being sellouts or just not very good musically but my perception of that kind of shifted a couple years ago when I realized that a lot of bands and artists that I like and know actually really were influenced by Kiss in a good way and I think that the way that they presented themselves and that they went out and published and licensed out their names for all kinds of stuff is a really unique thing that no other band really was able to achieve um and especially with the music that they do make, which is quite heavy still, especially their earlier records. It is interesting how they got this far and got this kind of success, knowing that they are might not have been the best musically or lyrically, but they still were able to get themselves out there with a very unique sound and style. So as always, we're going to look at the artists first, where they came from. We're going to look at the time when the album was released, what was happening in the genre and the world. And we're going to then look at the album itself and the aftermath. So let's get into it. KISS is an American hard rock band from New York City. The band was formed in early 1973 by its original and most iconic lineup consisting of the vocalist and guitarist Paul Stanley, vocalist and bassist Gene Simmons, drummer and vocalist Peter Chris, and guitarist Ace Frehley. Stanley and Simmons already had some kind of history before KISS as they played together in a band called Wicked Lester. With this band they actually recorded an album over the course of 1971 and 1972 for the label Epic Records. But this album got shelved and was not released at that point because label did not seem viable to release and did think the music was too great. So in the following year, Stanley and Simmons decided they wanted to go in a kind of different musical direction than Wicked Lester. So they decided to split off and start a new band with a harder sound, real hard rock band. And in 1972, they started looking for new members already. And they first started out with a drummer, and they saw an advertisement in the Rolling Stone magazine by the drummer Peter Chris, 
who was looking for a band to play with. He actually first played in the band called Lips and Chelsea. So after an audition, Peter Chris was recruited by Simmons and Stanley to join the band. And they started to create their own sound and they started to place showcases for record labels. In the following year, in the early 1973, the band also recruited Ace Frehley after a very impressive audition that he did. Now if you look at the name of the band, KISS, it supposedly came to be when Stanley, Simmons and Chris were driving around the city and Chris was telling the others that he was in a band called Lips. Now Stanley then suggested their band to be called KISS. Of course, kissing lips. Makes sense. And so it has a bit more of a literal meaning instead of what some suggested to be related to either Satan or even Nazis because of the logo looking similar to the SS insignia that this, the forces of Nazi Germany were using. And these controversies actually caused the band to use different logos in parts of the world, uh, like in Germany or in Israel, in order not to be associated with this. Now the first performance that the band did as KISS took place on January 30th, 1973, at the Popcorn Club in Queens. And the band was only paid $50 for performing two sets during that night. And during the first couple sets here, they did not wear their makeup just yet. Because the iconic character designs that they're now known of made their debut in March that year at the Daisy in Amityville, New York. And now that we're talking about that makeup, Kiss is of course known for their stage presence and personas that they have created. I know I just want to get into that for the people who are not as familiar with that. We can start off with Paul Stanley, who is known as the Star Child, Gene Simmons, known as the Demon, Peter Chris as the Catman, and Ace Frehley as the Spaceman. This is, of course, noticeable in the different makeups they use. Now, a few days after these shows that I mentioned, the band recorded a demo tape, and they later signed on a manager to try and get them a record deal. They were eventually signed to Casablanca Records and they started working on their debut album with them. Now the early KISS albums did not turn out to be a great commercial success, but their live shows with the way that they of course dressed up and the way that they presented themselves seemed to gain them a lot of reputation and especially their theatrics such as pyrotechnics, flame breathing blood spitting and guitar smashing seem to be really something that hit with the audience. Now, later in their career, the band saw a lot of commercial success, especially through the mid to late 70s. And they expanded their reach from just music to other merchandising, of course, being the band with the most amount of licensed products in the world. And they also made appearances on TV and different movies. Now, even though this merchandising and licensing was a great source of income and way to get their name out there, it also caused them to get a lot of criticism from rock purists, but also just people who liked their original stuff and thought they were selling out, basically. 
Now, funnily enough though, as I mentioned before, Kiss's sound and appearance is not very mainstream, necessarily. Their music has been often categorized as hard rock, shock rock, glam rock, and even heavy metal. And their biggest influences were Alice Cooper, The New York Dolls, Slade, and The Yardbirds, actually. So before we get into the album of this week, Destroyer, let's look at some of the music that was released prior to that. As I mentioned, the band was signed on to Casablanca Records, and this happened in 1973. By the end of the year, the band went into the studio and they recorded their self-titled debut album based on the demos they had recorded prior to that. And this self-titled debut album was released in 1974. Songs featured on this were mostly songs that Simmons and Stanley had written with their previous band, Wicked Lester. And just like their previous band, this album was not a big commercial success. But it did chart and had some success later on when it was re-released and there was another song added to it called Kissing Time. And as the album was released, the band was on tour trying to promote this album very heavily. And during this time, they were already performing some of the stage theatrics that they are now still known from. But it did not boost the sales that much. And the band went back into the studio for their second album and hoping that would be a bigger success. This became the album Hotter Than Hell. And this album did not perform well either. And once again, once it was released, the band was on tour, but they were actually pulled from this tour earlier than they were supposed to, just to get back into the studio, because the record label was really struggling financially, and they needed more album sales to make up for that. So in order to sell more records, they went into the studio for their third album, which was a bit more poppier in a way, less heavy, and this was the 1975 album Dressed to Kill. And this album was actually mildly successful, but its singles did not manage to chart that well. But because of their years of touring and stage theatrics and their very tight schedule in terms of going around the country, the band had built up some sort of a cult following. And this cult following was especially located in the Rust Belt in America. And in this area, they were actually able to play larger venues and get their names out there. Now, once again, the label was still struggling a lot financially and was afraid to go under. So, because of Kiss's live success, they came with the idea to capitalize on this. So they decided to record some of their live performances and release it as a double live album. And this is what actually became their breakthrough success. And I'll talk more about this album on a later episode. Because this album is alive and features later on the list. Now the album was a big success because it featured a song that was released on the, on the album prior to this. But it really reached a mainstream audience when the single of the album was released. And I think most of you heard this song, but just for good measure and not to be remiss of mentioning this, here's that song, Rock and Roll All Night. Shouting, Come on! 
So let's look at the time surrounding the release of the album. The 1970s in New York City were a very tough time. I talked about this briefly in the previous episode, but the 1970s saw a financial crisis, especially in New York City. In the mid-70s, the city had run out of money for operating expenses, which led to layoffs and pay freezes for a lot of citizens in the city. This caused an exponential increase in crime and poverty with all kinds of consequences that came after. And the president at this time, Gerald Ford, was also refusing any bailouts to the city, which angered a lot of people in the city. And the dissatisfaction of the citizens and increasing crime, poverty and homelessness might have actually led to an increase and revolution in the art and music industry, especially with harder and more and angrier music becoming more popular and evolving in the city. Think about punk and hard rock music like KISS. And that genre, hard rock, is something that could be best related to KISS because of their typically heavier sound, but their stage shows and appearances might actually also put them into the shock rock genre. Now hard rock music saw a big emergence in the late 60s and early 70s with bands that combined psychedelic, rock, and blues elements into a new style. The most prominent bands in this time were Led Zeppelin, Deep Purple, and Black Sabbath. Meanwhile, other bands that were known for a more typical rock and roll sound would also move into a heavier direction as well, such as The Who and The Rolling Stones. The latter two were also a precursor of what would later become punk music, came into existence in New York City, just around the same time that KISS was up and coming. Now KISS did not go into the whole DIY and really underground direction though, as they were also more inspired by more theatrics and not necessarily only the heavy sound, but also the performance. And most of these acts would be categorized as shock rock, and some of the pioneers in the genre especially in the 1970s, was Alice Cooper, who would have his makeup on around his eyes, but also would use costumes and props to make his stage show more shocking to audiences. Now that we have looked at the history of the band and the time surrounding the album, and of course the genre, we're going to look into the album. Because after the great success of Alive, KISS continued their contract with Casablanca Records, which they really helped out with their charting success. The band went to the studio for a few sessions in September of 1975 at Electric Lady Studios in New York City. It's of course Jimi Hendrix's famous studio. But after these sessions, of course, they had to go back on tour to promote their live album. And after this, they continued sessions and worked on finishing and really laying down all of the tracks in January and February of 1976. And this was done at Record Plant Studios in New York City as well. Now, because KISS had such a big success with their record, they were able to sign a new contract, which opened up for more budget to hire a well-acclaimed producer. 
and they chose Bob Ezrin. And Ezrin had most notably worked with Alice Cooper before, which of course was a giant inspiration to Kiss. And later in his career, he has also worked with other bands such as Pink Floyd and Deep Purple. Now the band actually had met Ezrin before at a TV show in Toronto. And according to Ezrin, during that meeting, he talked to Stanley and he told them if they were not happy with their records, they should come to him because he would love to work with them. Well, a year later, he got a call if he wanted to see the band perform live. And he described this as follows, quote, It was unbelievably energetic, exciting, theatrical, powerful, and just fantastic. It was pure, balls out, testosterone rock. What was missing for me was the broader audience. So after I told them I'd do the album, the underlying mission behind the record became that we were going to try and reach out to women as well as young men. And we were going to try to expand past just heavy rock and into the world of pop." End quote. In order to do that, Bob Ezrin was able to push the band even further and he helped progress their songwriting into something more and something that could be more commercially appealing. And Stanley would describe this process later as follows, quote, Pre-production consisted of sitting in a circle and Bob would say, who's got an interesting piece of music? And someone would play something and he'd say, no, someone else would play something. Ultimately, he would say, I like that. Who's got a piece to go with that? And some of the songs were pieced together like that. Other times, someone might come in with a song and Bob would fine tune it. End quote. Now the band has described this, this time in the studio sometimes as a camp where Bob Ezrin would have a whistle and call the band his campers. They were meant to listen to him as he had the experience and knew what he was doing. But this wasn't always the easiest for the band, as they were used to just doing what they felt like, without much musicianship going into the process. So, in contrast to that, for this record the band would rehearse a lot, and they would be mentored by Ezrin in learning their instruments and music theory better. And some of the recording was done in unconventional ways as well, not just live in one take, but with overdubbing and interesting places. For example, some drums were recorded in an elevator shaft to create a very heavy and bulky sound. On other tracks, the band actually worked together with the New York Philharmonic, a whole orchestra. Now, the name of the record, um, according to Stanley, comes from a Navy destroyer something that is forceful and keeps the peace except when necessary because then it will take you out. The album cover was designed by Ken Kelly with the idea coming from the art director Dennis Wolloch and they wanted to create a picture of the four band members abreast running at the audience very intense and they wanted all of the members to be equal. So in order to set this up he used the Polaroid camera first and took poses of himself and put them all together to make sure they all fitted correctly. Now first it was very intense with a lot of fire 
but they later decided to change it a little bit to make it more appealing to mainstream audiences. Now, even though that the album is described as a party album in the introduction of Rolling Stone magazine, there's definitely some more depth to it, at least in my opinion. And this is because the album can be considered somewhat of a concept album, with some storytelling elements and very cinematic elements, and songs that transition into each other. And this is something you can definitely notice in the opening and the closing track, in a way being a book cover. And because of the involvement of producer Bob Ezrin, the bar was set much higher. And to quote Paul Stanley on that, he said, quote, Up until then, quite honestly, I'm putting this as simply as possible. We were writing fuck me, suck me songs. And Bob wanted none of that. End quote. And musically, it was much more than just rock and heavy instruments. Bob Ezrin actually introduced more classical elements into the music, such as a Beethoven piece, and also some classical Spanish folk music that inspired some of the solos. So let's look at some of the tracks, starting with the opening, Detroit Rock City. And this song was originally written as an ode to Detroit, as a great rock city. But while writing this song, Stanley heard of a fan that was struck by a car and killed outside of the arena that Kiss were playing somewhere in the south. And this struck with him. And instead, he turned the song into a story of someone going to a Kiss concert but never making it. And it's about the disparity of wanting to celebrate life and it ending in your demise. Now this song is also somewhat of a reference to their Alive album which was in part recorded in Detroit. And it also features some of rock and roll all night playing on a radio as the fan is going to the KISS show. Now, besides all these cinematic and great elements, the song features some classical guitar elements akin to Ravel's Bolero. And this can be heard in the guitar solo. And this solo was actually written by Ezrin himself and then played note by note by Fraley and Stanley after. song. Now the following song I want to talk about is a classic, something that is definitely one of Kiss's most iconic songs, might, might not have been their biggest hit. And this is the song God of Thunder. And this song started out with Simmons and Stanley making fun of each other, with Stanley saying that Simmons would only write songs about monsters like God of Thunder and stuff like that. And this gave Stanley the idea to actually write this song. And Simmons would do the same with a track that would end up on a later record called Christine 16. 
And this is, of course, a joke about Stanley owning writing love songs, being all sweet and stuff. Now, God of Thunder, however, is a song that is about being the son of Apollo and also being the God of Thunder. But the God of Thunder can also be a way to express of saying you're the God of rock and roll. Now, as Stanley had written the song, he showed it to Bob Ezrin. And Ezrin decided that Gene Simmons should sing the song instead. And so it became one of Simmons' most identifiable tracks, even though it was written by Stanley as a joke. The next track I want to talk about is another real classic, Shout It Out Loud. And this is one of the songs that has been played the most out of all of Kiss's live shows, even up to this day. And this song was also released as the lead single of the album and was able to break through the top 40. And the album takes its name from the Holly song, We Want to Shout It Out Loud. The song was written at Ezrin's apartment with Simmons and Stanley beside him and his piano. And it was written about a half an hour after Simmons hummed the chorus and they pieced the rest of it together. And they have said that the way that the vocals play off of each other was inspired by the group The Four Hats. And they even admitted it's kind of a ripoff of them. Now the final track I have to talk about is Beth. Now this is one of the few songs that was written by drummer Peter Chris, originally called Beck. And he wrote this song with his previous band about the guitarist's wife, Rebecca, who kept calling to the studio asking when the guitarist would be home. Now Chris sang a part of this song to Simmons when they were on their way to Flint, Michigan for a show. And Simmons suggested that he should bring this song to the studio, to Ezrin, to see if it would make it on the album. He did, however, suggest that the name should be called Beth, as it sounded nicer. And the song started out with more of a country feel, a country sound to it, with that inspiration. But when Ezrin got his hands on it and heard it, he actually worked on it and added the piano to it, turning it into a more of a romantic and bittersweet ballad. A very different direction that the band was used to, of course. Now, to even add more onto that romantic and bittersweet feeling, the band recruited the New York Philharmonic to record on this track. And this once again created a very cinematic and grand sound. Which of course fits a bit with their anthem style, but still very 
a very different kind of approach than they were used to. Because of its bittersweet feeling, the song became their biggest hit worldwide. You say you feel so empty That our house just ain't a home I'm always somewhere else And you're always there alone Just a few more Destroyer was released on March 15th of 1976, and this happened while KISS was on tour. And at this point they were already starting to sell out shows to promote their live album. And a completely useless but still interesting fact is that on this tour, just a few days prior to the release of this album, they played a show with Boss Skaggs. It's of course an interesting link to an earlier episode there, but completely useless. Now, when the album was released, it was a modest commercial success, but it did not meet the expectations of the record company initially. Shout It Out Loud was a hit, but the album did not remain on the charts for that long. And the grassroots rock press were especially critical of the album, which may have also led to the album not being embraced by rock radio either. For example, the Rolling Stone magazine wrote the album featured, quote, loaded ballads, pedestrian drumming, and lackluster performances, end quote. A bit bitter, of course. And the album peaked at number 11 on the Billboard 200 chart, but it quickly dropped after that. And it was not until radio stations started playing the B-side of their single Detroit Rock City, because the song on this B-side was Beth. Now, radio stations would play this song sometimes, and as they did, they would get more and more requests to play the song again. And this reignited the album's sales and popularity. Bath was released as, as its own single, and it became the band's biggest hit. And it introduced a whole new audience to the band, just like they intended. And this success eventually led to a lot of magazines and media outlets praising the album retroactively as they saw that it was just not another party rock album. It had some more depth to it. Now, with this renewed success, on tour the band started selling out even larger venues and not just in the Rust Belt, but all across America. And night after night, they would end up playing sold out venues and they quickly became what is known as the hottest band in the world. Also maybe referring to their pyrotechnics, of course. And around this tour, they also played a television special, which launched them into the mainstream even further. And the two follow-up albums that came after this album, Rock and Roll Over and Love Gun, were great successes as well, with the latter being their first top five album. And with these albums, they decided to branch out even more with plentiful merchandising, starting out with comic books published by Marvel Comics. 
And a story goes, and it's reportedly true, is that there was blood taken from each band member and that blood was put into the red ink barrels that were used to print the books. So whenever you'd buy a KISS comic book, you would get some of blood droplets in the ink of what was printed. Other licensed merchandise were stuff like pinball machines, dolls, makeup kits so you could make your own KISS makeup, and even a very famous radio that was so wanted that it still goes on auctions for a very high price. Now this merchandise formed a substantial income for the band, at times even being more than the income from record sales and tours they were doing. But with this success, there of course came more criticism from rock purists, who claimed that KISS were sellouts and disregarded their music just to make more money. Now by 1978, the band's management was looking further for ways to push the band and a plan was devised for the band to release separate studio albums that showcased each member's individual style. But this was of course also a way to sell more records. And another project was a TV movie, which then became Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park. These projects weren't as successful, but Kiss still stayed within the mainstream. Their 1979 album, Dynasty, once again proved to be a great success. And especially with their disco-influenced single, I Was Made For Loving You, the band really reached another level of success. There were some issues within the band, however, because Peter Chris was in a car accident just before the album was recorded, and this affected his drumming. This is why he did not feature on the album that much. Now, around this time, Ace Freely was also struggling with heavy drug and alcohol addiction. And he would behave wrongly on interviews, tours, and eventually Peter Chris was fired in 1980 and Ace Freely in 1982. Stanley and Simmons would continue as Kiss, however, and they recruited some new members. But this time they decided to go without makeup, going into a completely different direction. Now, there's a lot to say about these albums that came after that, but I'll just keep looking at the original lineup. Because they would reunite once again, first for an MTV Unplugged concert, and later for an appearance at the 1996 Grammy Awards. And after this, rumors started spreading that the band was reunited once again, and they embarked on a reunion tour. And they even went on to record a reunion album called Psycho Circus. They did not perform together on all of the songs on that album, but there's still a few tracks on there where they have collaborated on. Now this reunion lasted for a few years, but they later split up again after a farewell tour in 2001. This wasn't the final farewell, however, because Simmons and Stanley would continue touring a few years later again, and they recorded with new members again. Now, the final reunion that the original members would have would be in 2013, when they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They did not perform during this induction, however, but they all came together on stage and gave their speeches. And in 2019, the band actually embarked on their actual final tour, 
but most of the dates on that tour were postponed because of the pandemic going on. And there are rumors, of course, that the original members would come back together for some of these shows on this tour, but that remains to be seen. Now, even though KISS has gotten a lot of criticism over their career because of their music, stage performance, merchandising, and whatever else, they're often cited by artists to be a huge inspiration to them. And their influence spreads across all genres. With artists covering their music or even starting their career as KISS cover bands. And an example that comes to my head is Rivers Cuomo of the band Weezer, who actually wasn't a KISS cover band before he started that band. Now, during their in Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction, guitarist of Rage Against the Machine Tom Morello gave a great speech and he listed off a few bands and artists that were inspired by KISS. And I'll name some of those, of course. First off, Metallica, Lady Gaga, Tool, Pearl Jam, Garth Brooks, Foo Fighters, Soundgarden, and many more. So, even though all the criticism, there's definitely something to be said about their influence on different artists. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked it, make sure to follow or subscribe to the podcast so you get a new episode into your feed. You can also tell, of course, your friends or anyone else uh, about the podcast if you want to share it. It's always, it's always nice. You can also rate the podcast in some of the apps. I've actually added the podcast in some, of new, in some new podcast apps. So if it's not available in your, uh, your favorite app, please let me know. You can do that on Twitter and Instagram at 500albumspod. That's 500albumspod. Or you can email me with any um, other questions and suggestions on by sending an email to 500albumspod at gmail.com. Next week, we'll be looking at album number 487, which is New Day Rising by Husker Du. So make sure to listen to that album and I'll see you then. Bye.